0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from NPR, the Tom Hartman Program, the David Pakman Show, the Young Turks, and Truth Dig Radio.
1: So the story, is, as you tell it, about this alliance between business leaders and Christian leaders dates back to the 1930s when business leaders were struggling on two fronts, the Depression and the New Deal. What were their problems with the New Deal?
2: Their problems with the New Deal were that they suddenly found themselves on the defensive. The New Deal had passed a large number of measures that were regulating business um, in some ways for the first times. Uh, it had empowered labor unions and given them a voice in the affairs of business. Uh, corporate leaders uh, resented both of these moves. And so they launched a massive campaign of public relations designed to sell the values of free enterprise. Uh, the problem was is that their, their naked appeals uh, to the merits of capitalism uh, were largely dismissed by the public. Uh, the most famous of these organizations was a group called the American Liberty League, and it was heavily financed by um, uh, leaders at DuPont, General Motors, and other corporations. The problem was is that it seemed like very obvious uh, uh, corporate propaganda. Uh, as Jim Farley, the head of the Democratic Party at the time, said, uh, they ought to call it the American cellophane League, because, number one, it's a DuPont product, and number two, you can see right through it. So when they realized that making this direct case for free enterprise wasn't effective, they decided to find another way to do it. They decided to outsource the job. And as they noted in their private correspondence, ministers were the most trusted men in America at the time, and so who better to make the case uh, to the American people than ministers?
1: And so they felt that, the, that ministers could say things in a more credible way than business leaders could about the importance of free enterprise and its connection to Christian ideals?
2: That's it exactly. Uh, they use these ministers to make the case that Christianity and capitalism were soulmates. Uh, this case had been made before, but in the context of the New Deal, it takes on a, a sharp new political meaning. And essentially, they argue that Christianity and capitalism are both systems in which individuals rise and fall according to their own merits. And so, uh, in Christianity, if you're good, you go to heaven. If you're bad, you go to hell. In capitalism, if you're good, you make a profit and you succeed. If you're bad... You fail. The New Deal, they argue, violates this natural order. In fact, they argue that the New Deal and the regulatory state violates the Ten Commandments. It makes a false idol of the federal government and encourages Americans to worship it rather than the Almighty. It encourages Americans to covet what the wealthy have. It encourages them to steal from the wealthy in the forms of taxation. And most importantly, it bears false witness against the wealthy by telling lies about them. So they argue that the New Deal is not a manifestation of God's will, but rather a form of pagan sadism, and it is inherently sinful.
1: Pagan statism. That's right. So the first Christian leader who becomes big in what you describe as this alliance between big business and, and Christian leaders is the Reverend James Fifield, um, how did he become the first Christian leader to make this partnership with business leaders, with business lobbies in the 1930s?
2: Well, Fifield's a fascinating character. He takes over the uh, the pastor at the First Congregational Church in Los Angeles, an elite church, uh, literally ministering to millionaires in his pews. That's got some of the town's uh, most uh, wealthy citizens. Uh, the mayor attends service there, Cecil B. DeMille. He tells these millionaires what they want to hear, which is that their worldly success is a sign of heavenly blessing. Uh, He has a very loose approach to the Bible. Uh, He says that uh, reading the Bible should be like eating fish. We take out the bones to enjoy the meat. All parts are not of equal value. Accordingly, he disregarded Christ's many injunctions about the dangers of wealth and instead preached a philosophy uh, that wedded capitalism to Christianity.
1: One of the things that uh, Reverend Fifield is responsible for is he's the founder of the spiritual mobilization. He founds that in 1935 to promote freedom under God and to, quote, arouse the ministers of all denominations in America to check the trends toward pagan statism, which would destroy our basic freedom and spiritual ideals. So tell us a little bit about the spiritual mobilization that he
2: founded. Spiritual mobilization is his effort to recruit other ministers to the cause. So he is serving in many ways as a, as a front man for a number of, uh, of corporate leaders. Um, his main sponsor uh, is Sun Oil President J. Howard Pugh, but Alfred Sloan of General Motors, uh, the heads of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the National Association of Manufacturers, they all heavily fund this organization. But what Feifeld sets out to do is to recruit other ministers to his cause. And within the span of just a decade's time, he has about 17,000 so-called minister representatives who belong to the organization, who are literally preaching sermons on its Christian libertarian message to their congregations, who are competing in sermon contests for cash prizes. And they are doing all they can in their local communities to spread this message that the New Deal is essentially evil. It's a manifestation of Creeping socialism, that is, rotting away the country from within. And instead, they need to rally around business leaders and make common cause with them to defend what they call the American way of life. In
1: 1940, Reverend Fifield addresses the lobby group, the National Association of Manufacturers, at their big annual convention. What's the importance of his appearance there?
2: Well, the National Association of Manufacturers had been trying throughout the 1930s to push back uh, against the New Deal. And it had largely failed. It had made very little headway. And so the new president of the National Association of Manufacturers in 1940 gives an address. It's one he'd actually given before to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and it rouses them. But he gives this major address. It's promoted ahead of time by the Wall Street Journal. It's carried live on two different radio stations. And in this address, he urges businessmen to use religion in the public relations war against the New Deal. He says, economic facts are important, but they will never check the virus of collectivism. The only antidote is a revival of American patriotism and religious faith. He says, we must give more attention to the spiritual concept that underlies our American way of life. So, Fifield is someone who's ready to make this case. Uh, He'd already been making it for several years locally in Los Angeles, and here he finds a national audience are so ready to hear him that, according to one journalist, the applause for this speech that he gave at the Waldorf Astoria, the applause could be heard in Hoboken.
1: So what do you consider Reverend Fifield's greatest contributions to the alliance between business and Christian leaders and to the fur- furthering of the image of America as a Christian nation?
2: He helps refine the message considerably. He comes up with a phrase that reduces this Christian libertarian ideology uh, down to a a catchy slogan, and that slogan is freedom under God, uh, as opposed to the slavery of the state. And he popularizes this, again, using the generous funding of his corporate backers, he popularizes this through a weekly radio program that soon appears on over 800 stations nationwide, through a monthly magazine that popularizes the writings of libertarian and conservative authors. And most importantly, I think, through a massive Fourth of July ceremony in 1951, a ceremony organized by Cecil B. DeMille, featuring James Stewart as the Master of Ceremonies, and carried live coast-to-coast over national radio. And in that ceremony, as in the magazine and the weekly radio show, he promotes this message that freedom under God is an essential value, that Americans need to cast off the slavery of the state, and instead embrace a rugged individualism.
1: So one of the key Christian leaders in your book is Reverend Abraham Veraday. So before he became a a national figure and before he became allied with major business leaders, what was he known
2: for? He was known for bringing together political leaders and businessmen at the local level. He started a series of prayer breakfasts in the mid-1930s in an effort to help businessmen weather the storm of labor unrest that was rocking cities like San Francisco and Seattle. And so he brings together local political elites with leading businessmen in these prayer breakfasts where they can try to find common cause and work out a way ahead.
1: So he started prayer breakfasts locally in Seattle. But then he comes to Washington and starts weekly prayer meetings He persuades the House and the Senate to have weekly prayer meetings. Tell us about um, how he managed to be so persuasive in Washington, in Congress.
2: Well, in in a way, his effort to bring political leaders and business leaders together at the local level, it's a process in which both sides benefit. Business leaders uh, like him more the more political contacts he has. Political leaders like him more the more business contacts he has. And this spreads his influence across the country. He starts setting up meetings in places like New York, where IBM's Thomas Watson and Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia, even Reverend Norman Vincent Peale, seek out audiences with him. And by 1942, his crusade brings him to Washington, D.C., where he very quickly convinces members of the House and the Senate to set up their own weekly prayer breakfast. And these are prayer breakfasts not just for members of Congress, but also for prominent businessmen. The heads of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the National Association of Manufacturers, other business leaders often sit in on them. And so in this seemingly wholesome setting, business and political elites come together to find common cause.
3: Candle, candle on my clock. Oh, Lord, I must have heard you knock me out of bed. As the flames licked my head And my lungs filled up black In their tiny little shack It was real, and I repent All those messages you sent Clear as day, but in the night Oh, I couldn't get it right
4: What's interesting about this is the whole history behind, um, not just the gay marriage case, but the, the, you know, these, these quote, religious freedom bills. I would call them right to discriminate bills in, you know, right for businesses to discriminate based on presumably the religion of some of their stockholders or shareholders or, or management or whatever. And, and these, the the origin of this whole thing, you know, where it all started, is really fascinating stuff. I mean, it's it's like you know it it, it began. Well, in fact, there's there's uh, we're trying to we're going to get uh, uh, Kevin Cruz on the show. He wrote a book called uh, "One Nation Under God," and uh, just some little pieces of this back in 1940. We were coming out of the Great Depression, and five thousand industrialists were gathered together in New York City at the Waldorf Astoria, which is still a nice hotel, but at that time it was the nice hotel in New York City. And uh, they had, you know, the CEOs speaking from General Motors, General Electric, Standard Oil, Mutual Life, Sears, Roebuck, even even uh, J. Edgar Hoover spoke, the FBI director. And it ended pretty much this meeting with a speech by a fellow by that nobody had heard of then, and probably most people haven't heard of now. His name was James W. Fifield Jr. And it's, uh, and I just I just put two and two together because, uh, 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 well, uh, I saw a friend of mine over the weekend who said, uh, you know, do you know about James Fifield? And I'm like, no, but I, you know, I had read the name before, but I didn't, I didn't recognize it. He got up and he gave a speech and he said, as a, as a minister, as a Christian minister, 1940, he said that the New Deal was an encroachment. This is FDR's New Deal, right? Got us out of the Great Depression, brought us social security and unions and all that kind of stuff. He said it was an encroachment on our American freedoms. He said there's a multitude of federal agencies attached to the executive branch. That represent the menace of autocracy approaching through bureaucracy. In other words, our government was going to, because of our regulatory agencies, and this was even before the EPA and half the regulatory agencies we have now, through our regulatory agencies, our government was becoming oppressive. Well, to whom? To business. It's not oppressive to you or me, but, you know, I mean, I don't have to fill out forms with the EPA, but if I was refining oil, or burning oil, for that matter. I might have to. And and as Cruz writes, uh, Kevin Cruz writes in his book, he says uh, Fifield's audience of executives is stunned. He said these titans of industry had been basically uh, taking on the story since 1928. Keep keep in mind, this was you know these people, most of these people saw the Great Crash, lived through the Great Depression. This is now just a decade later. And uh, they had been taking the blame for it, right? I mean, America was blaming the the big businesses and the Republicans for the Great Depression. And rightfully so, by the way, because they caused the Great Depression, just like they caused the crash in 2008, just like they're going to cause the next crash, what I call the crash of 2016. So what did Fifield uh, Fifield said? He said, you got to get religion. Start using religion to... Essentially, manipulate the masses. It's almost like he read Das Kapital, you know, Karl Marx's religion is the opiate of the masses, and he was like, Yeah, let's start throwing some opium at these people. To to quote uh, Cruz's book, he said, Fifield told the industrialists that clergymen would be crucial in regaining the upper hand in their war with Roosevelt. Now, this is mind boggling to me because, you know, Christianity is so explicit that. To be a Christian, and, and and of course, it's not unique to Christianity. It's it's uh, you know these same sentiments are found in Islam, and in Judaism, and in the non monotheistic religions, in Buddhism and and Hinduism, and and all, I mean all of they, they, these are just core human principles. That that you know humility and and you know the people who seek riches are, are getting stuck and you know bloody bloody blah. Anyhow, he says so. Uh, Fifield told the industrialists that clergymen would be crucial in regaining the upper hand in their war with Roosevelt. As men of God, ministers could voice the same conservative complaints as business leaders, but without the suspicion that they were motivated by self-interest. They could push back against claims made by Roosevelt that business had somehow sinned and the welfare state was doing God's work. And Cruz writes, this was a watershed moment. This was a new blend of conservative religion, conservative economics, conservative politics, Uh, One observer aptly anointed it Christian libertarianism. And this led to the rise of of, uh, Billy Graham and and all these things. You know, the the head of the Federal Council of Churches had said of the New Deal that it embodied Christian principles, right? Originally, the churches in America were all gung-ho, or most of the churches in America were all gung-ho in favor of Franklin Roosevelt. The, the president of the Federal Council of Churches said that the, Christ, the, the New Deal embodies Christian principles such as, quote, the significance of daily bread, shelter, and security. So here you've got you know, religious leaders in the United States supporting the New Deal. And so business leaders said, you know, we can't, it can't be us against the churches. So we've got to invent our own churches, basically. A, a neo-Calvinism a new religious doctrine. And so Reverend Fifield took over the uh, First Congregational Church in Los Angeles in 1935. He was nicknamed the Apostle to Millionaires. This was a church that, you know, many of the very wealthy people in Hollywood went to. And notably... Cruz no, writes in his book: "Fayfield dis- dismissed the many pa- passages in the New Testament about wealth and poverty, and instead assured the elite that their worldly success was a sign of God's blessings." Right? Where have we heard this before? And he founded a group called Spiritual Mobilization, whose mission was, quote, "to arouse the ministers of all denominations in America to check the trend toward pagan statism, which would destroy our basic freedom and spiritual ideals." He said, God imbued us with inalienable rights, which included enterprise and property. God wants you to be rich. God wants you to be a business person. And and churches, he said, have the solemn duty to defend those rights against the encroachments of the state. So now we've got a fundamentalist Christian effort by business to take over. The, you know, to, to, to take over religion in America and influence the American people. You know, I keep telling you that the Republican Party and this this was business leaders, these were Republicans by and large, although back then there were probably more pro-corporate Democrats in the, but, or uh, a few anyway. Actually, in the 1940s, most all Democrats were just gung-ho for FDR. But I've said so often that there are, in in the Republican Party, there are the billionaires, there are the paid shills for the billionaires, and there are the suckers. I've
5: no I'm joined today by Burt Newborn, who is Professor of Civil Liberties at NYU Law School, former legal director of the ACLU, and also author of the book Madison's Music, on reading the First Amendment. The First Amendment is, if you're at all discussing politics in 2015 so relevant and you've been looking very closely at what the first amendment actually says it's not clear that everybody is doing that recently so let's start there what does the first amendment say what doesn't it say also
6: well in fact the first amendment is consists of forty five words nobody ever and including the current supreme court ever tries to read all forty five words at once what they do is they pluck a couple of words out of the text like the free speech clause which is a words, or the press clause, um, or the petition clause, or the establishment clause, and they read them as though they were um, uh, self-contained documents, and they hold a couple of words in their hands, and they think that they're getting the full meaning of of the text. Um, I'm urging people to remember that the text is 45 words long. It's not just a couple of words long, and you would never read a poem by tearing a couple of words out and thinking we're getting the poem. You would never listen to a great piece of music uh, by listening to a couple of notes and thinking we're getting the whole piece of music. And I think we've made a terrible mistake um, by cannibalizing the First Amendment um, into a kind of uh, several different... Uh, pieces of turf that don't seem to have any connection with the rest. And I urge people to read the whole amendment. And if you read the whole amendment, there's a remarkable story there.
5: And tell us about now that you have put so much time into looking at those 45 words and looking, looking at the history of those 45 words, how should the, for, for, for the layperson, what's well, the accurate understanding of the First Amendment? Yeah, the
6: important thing in my book, I mean, to the extent the book has anything important at all, it's that lay people can read the First Amendment just as well as judges. There's no magic in that text. There's no special license that lawyers have uh, to know what the true meaning of the First Amendment is. The words are there for us all to read. Um, And the important thing to remember is that the First Amendment is made up of six ideas. Um, It's the only time in our cultural history that those six ideas have ever been listed in a single document. When Madison was working on the First Amendment, he had 42 um, uh, documents that he was looking at, 42 source documents that he was looking at, ranging from the Magna Carta way back in 1215 through the English Bills of Rights, through the colonial charters, through the revolutionary Bills of Rights. Um, None of them had anything like this remarkable organization. And this is what Madison did. He starts it with the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause, two clauses, Establishment clause is freedom from religion. You've got to remember that the first thing in the First Amendment is freedom from religion. It prevents people from shoving their religion down your throat. Secondly, free exercise of religion, the ability to exercise your religion free from government compulsion. Now, to put the two of them together, and what Madison was working on was conscience, freedom of conscience. He wanted a third clause that would protect secular conscience. We couldn't get it through the Senate uh, in 1789, uh, but the Supreme Court has put it back in through a kind of word magic. So when we look at the uh, first two clauses now, the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause, we have freedom of conscience. And if you want a democracy, that's where a democracy has to start. It starts in the free thought of a free citizen. Now, once that thought generates an idea, the next thing you need in a democracy is the ability to articulate the idea. So it's no coincidence that the free speech clause is third. It comes after the two conscience clauses. So uh, once you enunciate an idea in your free conscience, the free speech clause allows you to speak. But speaking is not enough in a democracy. I hope I'm going to reach more people on this program that I will be able to speak to personally in my whole life. So that Madison realized that you need a fourth clause, and the fourth clause is a free press clause to be able to magnify your speech, amplify it, and allow it to reach a mass audience. And then he said, hey, after it reaches the mass audience, what's the next thing that democracy needs? Well, the next thing that democracy needs is the right to free collective action. Once you have a freely expressed idea, that has been spoken under the speech clause, disseminated to a mass audience under the press clause. The next thing is to organize, to organize around it, and that's what freedom of assembly is. Freedom of assembly is the freedom to take collective action in support of a democratic idea, and it couldn't come anywhere else. It couldn't come before speech. It couldn't come before press, because you can't have collective action until you have mass dissemination of the idea, and then finally, after mass dissemination of the idea in the collective action uh, clause, you then have the petition clause, which is the right to take that idea and bring it to the, uh, uh, to the authorities, to the legislature, to the president, and require them to act on it one way or the other. So when you think about it, the First Amendment is a story of the life cycle of a democratic idea, beginning in the free conscience of a free citizen, freely articulated, disseminated in a mass basis, organized around through assembly, and finally presented to the government for petition. It, and and every single word is exactly where it should be, and if only we would read it as this collect as this wonderful poem to democracy. There's no way that we could read the First Amendment the way the Supreme Court does today, to essentially let the super rich control democracy. What the what the Supreme Court has done is torn. The free speech clause out of the heart of the First Amendment itself and used it as a mechanism to say money equals speech, therefore any amount of spending is protected by the First Amendment even if it completely undercuts the ability to have a fair, robust, egalitarian democracy. And so what the court has done is it's turned uh, the, the, the First Amendment from being democracy's best friend which is what Madison was trying to create, and it's turned it into a bad parent. It's turned it into a, 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 the free speech clause polices democracy. It disciplines democracy. It prevents democracy from working even when the, cl- the law itself is designed to allow democracy to work. And my hope is that if people take a look at my book, if they're persuaded that there is a story, a wonderful poem, in that 45 words that they will realize that you have to construe the amendment as democracy 's um, enabling force, the thing that makes democracy work, and not as some sort of device uh, that makes it harder for democracy to
5: work and I think one of the the ways in which calling it a, a device used sometimes for for personal or political gain is the way that that free speech and the First Amendment have been misused colloquially in recent i 'll give you a couple of examples that really represent this misuse or misunderstanding i'm curious what you would think of with all the discussion now of of so-called religious freedom bills uh... what happens when you have uh... conflicting religious freedom for example if you have christians refusing to serve muslims because the christian believes that. His religious freedom allows him to turn away whoever has religious beliefs they disagree with, but the Muslim also may be discriminated against based on their religious beliefs. What are the limits of that?
6: Well, David, that's an important perception because this isn't new. I remember when I was a young civil rights lawyer working in the South in the 60s, um, one of the arguments that the segregationists made was that they had a religious right to refuse service to blacks. Um, um, and that they, and that it was therefore a violation of their religious rights to say that blacks had a, 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 a right to come into the store or to the amusement park. Um, Or to rent from um, a landlord, Um, and we overrode that. We said that's ridiculous. You're not. Nobody has um, um, a First Amendment right to treat someone else unequally, because um, the fact is, um, your freedom of religion stops at the point that you use your religion to shift real costs to a third person. Um, and that's because the Establishment Clause is there. The, um, the reason the First Amendment starts with the Establishment Clause is that Madison realized that there should be freedom from religion. You cannot ask the government to take your religious beliefs and pound them into somebody else. Um, so that you cannot ask the government to say that you have a right to say that you won't serve gays, or that you won't serve blacks, or that you won't serve Muslims, or that you won't serve Jews. If you open up a place of public accommodations, and there's a law that says you have to serve everybody equally, there's no religious defense to that law. Because the moment there is a religious defense to that law, what you wind up with is saying that you can ask the government to impose a defense on a third person and make that third person bear the costs of your religious belief. The free exercise clause is all about enjoying the free exercise of religion when it doesn't shift the cost to anyone else, when you bear the costs yourself, but you don't have a right under the First Amendment to run around and use the religion clauses as a club to beat someone else and say, I can make you endure the costs of my
5: religious freedom i wish i could kill every christian because i love them and send them right on up to heaven for enjoyment because when i look at this planet earth in fact christians are suffering Working hard every day, slaving away for their pay, for your pasta for his offering.
1: Graham went on to I become predicts. one of the most well-known evangelicals in the United States. Um, but he wasn't very well-known yet at this time, was he?
2: Graham emerges on the national scene fairly quickly in late 1949. Uh, He's an incredibly talented preacher, but he's very young. He's about 30 years old when he starts. But he catches the eye of some very important people. He catches the eye of this oilman, Sid Richardson, who starts to fund him. But he also catches the eye of a number of prominent conservative uh, figures in the media. William Randolph Hearst instructs all of his papers to, quote, Puff Graham. Henry Luce meets with him and and deeply appreciates his message. And soon stories are appearing in Time and Life and, and Newsweek as well. And so he quickly rises uh, to a level of national prominence that Americans hadn't seen in decades.
1: So what do you think uh, Billy Graham helped promote within politics during the Eisenhower administration when he was very, you know, very uh, close to the president?
2: Well, Billy Graham helps promote this message of Christian libertarianism. And he does so even before Eisenhower takes power. Throughout the early 1950s, he was highly critical of labor unions and highly sympathetic of corporate needs. He tells a rally in 1952 that the Garden of Eden will be a paradise with no union dues, no labor leaders, no snakes, and no disease. He says the type of revival I'm calling for calls for an employee to put in a full eight hours of work. He said a good Christian would never join a union to unfairly take advantage of his employer. At the same time, Graham's hostility to organized labor was matched by his dislike of government involvement in the economy, which he invariably condemned as socialism. He warned that government restrictions in the realm of free enterprise threatened freedom of opportunity. He became such a passionate defender of unfettered free enterprise, that a London columnist eventually starts calling him the big business evangelist.
1: President Eisenhower instituted the first opening prayers at a cabinet meeting. That catches on in other departments, the State Department, the Pentagon, which started their meetings, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, with, with opening prayers. Was that at Billy Graham's suggestion?
2: The practice of prayer at cabinet meetings is actually a suggestion initiated by the Secretary of Agriculture, Ezra Taft Benson, who's one of the leaders of the Mormon church. Benson asked Eisenhower if he can give a prayer at one of the early cabinet meetings, and it quickly catches on. Eisenhower pulls his cabinet, and they're all universally in favor of this. So it quickly becomes a regular practice. That said, it wasn't an easy habit for Eisenhower himself to remember sometimes. After one cabinet meeting, his secretary recalled, Eisenhower slapped his forehead and said, Jesus Christ, we forgot the prayer.
1: So what do you see in Billy Graham's biggest role in the 1950s uh, as being in terms of uh, this alliance between Christian leaders, politicians, and business leaders.
2: His role is pivotal in the 1950s. He holds the first religious services on the steps of the U.S. Capitol. He holds regular revivals in the D.C. Armory in which congressmen are literally serving as the ushers. So he brings together religion and politics uh, with a a force that no one had seen before. And he helps fuse piety and patriotism uh, like no other religious leader had before him.
1: In trying to trace how America started to perceive itself as a Christian nation um, in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, you write about how In God We Trust was added to the postage stamp in 1954 um, how did that come to
2: be? So the phrase, in God we trust, comes from uh, an often forgotten stanza of the Star-Spangled Banner. It goes, uh, then conquer we must, when our cause it is just, and this be our motto, and God is our trust. Now that stanza was largely forgotten until the Civil War, when that phrase, in God we trust, is plucked out of that line and placed on coins. And it's done so at the urging of religious leaders who believe the Civil War has come uh, as a result of America's original sin of not officially being founded as a Christian nation. And they ask the Secretary of Treasury uh, to correct that. And he does so by placing it on coins. And the phrase appears on coins intermittently over the next 50 or 60 years. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt tries to have it removed. He believes it's close to sacrilege, uh, but the public uh, outcry prevents him from doing so. But during this moment of the Eisenhower years. the phrase flourishes and it does so first when it's placed on a stamp in 1954. in 1955 Congress decides to add it to not just coins but the paper money and in 1956 they move to make it the country's first official national motto.
1: So did that did that move past to make it the official motto?
2: Yes it did in 1956.
1: And then the words under God were added to the Pledge of Allegiance in 1954. How did that come to be?
2: Well, much like In God We Trust, the origins of One Nation Under God come from the Civil War, specifically in Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. But the phrase, again, is largely forgotten until it's plucked out of obscurity during this moment in the 1950s. And it's added to the Pledge of Allegiance. Originally, the Pledge of Allegiance was quite secular. In fact, its author, Francis Bellamy, was something that would have been considered an oxymoron in the 1950s. He's a Christian socialist. He's a Baptist minister. But like many Baptists of that era, he believes firmly in the separation of church and state, so he made no mention of God in the original pledge. But in the early 1950s, as this new religious revival is sweeping the country and taking on new political tones, the phrase, One Nation Under God, seizes the national imagination. And it starts with a proposal by the Knights of Columbus, the Catholic lay organization, to add the phrase under God to the Pledge of Allegiance. Their initial campaign doesn't go anywhere, but once Eisenhower's own pastor endorses it and a sermon he gives with Eisenhower sitting before him, it catches fire.
1: Who is Eisenhower's pastor? Was that Billy Graham?
2: No, his personal pastor was a man named Reverend George Dougherty. He's a Scotsman. And he says that as an immigrant he can listen to the Pledge of Allegiance in a way in which ordinary Americans who've heard it their entire lives cannot. And he said, as he listens to it, as his second-grade son comes home and recites it to him, he's struck by the fact that it could have been the Pledge of Allegiance to any country. In fact, he says, I could have even heard little Muscovites saying it to their hammer and sickle flag, because it lacks the one thing that makes America unique. And that, he argues, is the belief that America is one nation under God.
1: So the premise of your book is that Christian leaders and business leaders unite to equate Christianity with free market principles. Um, But you say that President Eisenhower, although he was very close to Billy Graham, kind of uncoupled those two things. So he brought the idea of, you know, one nation under God into into the White House, but at the same time um, that... He, he adhered to the principles of the New Deal. So that's kind of an argument against your thesis, because at this point, you know, the, the the leader of the country isn't following the agenda that you're describing.
2: Right, and so the, the corporate influence is really only present in the early part of this story, and the rest of it is a tale of unintended consequences. The movement that they had started, this idea that America is formally and officially a Christian nation, lives on beyond them. Eisenhower embraces that part of it, and so the corporate agenda that it backed it quickly falls away. And instead you have the unintended consequences of Americans starting to think uh, that their country was officially a religious nation.
7: So tell me about your freedom, because you know I'd like to hear all of the hate. phones are ringing, and I'm on the line, you can bet your last life, I'll be free from your lies, and I can see through your lies, and I'll remind you of this, before you scold me, that Jesus loved you, this yes, and that's my story,
4: back to Christianity, and, and government.
7: Are you really that shallow?
4: Uh, this is, first of all, I want to get into, you know, how the founders viewed this, and you know what "We the People" meant. Thomas Jefferson wrote in his personal diary entry for February 1st, 1799, quote: "When the clergy addressed General Washington on his departure from the government, it was observed in their consultation that he had never, on any occasion, said a word to the public which showed a belief in the Christian religion." Really, George Washington never said he was a Christian? And they thought they should so pen their address as to force him at length to declare publicly whether or not he was a Christian. They did so. That is, they tried to force him to do this. However, Jefferson wrote in his diary, the old fox was too cunning for them. He answered every article of their address, particularly except that, whether or not he was a Christian, which he passed over without notice. He went on to say, Washington never did say a word on the subject in any of his public papers except in the valedictory letter to the governor of the states when he resigned his commission in the army, wherein he speaks of the benign influence of the Christian religion. He says, I know that Governor Morris, who pretended pretended to be in his secrets, in other words, a confidant of Washington, uh, believed himself to, uh, has often told me that General Washington believed no more of that fundamentalist Christian system than did he himself. The Treaty of Tripoli, one of our first treaties one of our first trade agreements, right? The Treaty of Tripoli, 1797. It opens, the opening words, as the government of the... This was, by the way, written during the George Washington administration, presumably by his Secretary of State, who would have been Thomas Jefferson, but I'm not sure who wrote it. But in any case, it was worked out during the Washington administration, and then it was signed as a treaty. It was ratified by the Senate and signed as a treaty by John Adams, the second president, when Thomas Jefferson was vice president. And it says, quote... As the government of the United States is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion, and as it has in itself no character of enmity, you know, hatred, anger, whatever, against the laws, religion, or tranquility of Muslims, and as the said states never have entered into any war or act of hostility against any Mohammedan nation, Muslim nation, it is declared by the parties that no pretext arising from religious opinion shall ever produce an interruption of the harmony existing between the two countries. Right. We're not a Christian nation. Signed by John Adams, passed by the Senate. February 21st, 1811, John, uh, James Madison, his first veto, vetoing money to go to a church. He said in his veto message, because the bill vests and said incorporated church and also authority to provide for the support of the poor and the educated of poor children at the same, it would be a precedent for giving to religious societies as such and that of course he thought was a dangerous thing government should not be giving money to churches so then you know in in uh, the the question was america based on christianity right uh, this is uh, this is hysterical february tenth eighteen fourteen thomas jefferson letter to dr thomas cooper finally an answer to fortescue Alan's question why the Ten Commandments should not now be part of the common law of England, we may say they are not, because they never were. Christianity was not introduced until the 7th century. The conversion of the first Christian king of the Heptarchy, having taken place in the year 598, and that of the last in 686, here then was a space of 200 years during which the common law of England was in existence, and Christianity was no part of it. We might as well say that the Newtonian system of philosophy is a part of the common laws that the Christian religion is. In truth, the alliance between church and state in England has made their judges accomplices in the frauds of the clergy, and even bolder than they are. And on June 5, 1824, in a letter to Major John Cartwright, he writes, Our revolution commenced on more favorable ground than the foundation of English or biblical law. It presented us an album on which we were free to write what we pleased. We had no occasion to search into musty records to hunt up royal parchment or to investigate the laws and institutions of a semi-barbarous ancestor.
5: Early in the morning, about the break of day, I asked the Lord, help me find a way. Help me find a way, help me find a way to the promised land. Lord, won't me won't
8: so in Kansas um, the Republicans take their religion very seriously uh, to the point where uh, they like to shred the Constitution um, so we live in a secular country but they don't want to Admit that, and they refuse to acknowledge that. They still want to apply religious tests uh, to this, to folks who live in this country. One of those is Courtney Canfield. Uh, now, she happens to uh, be Christian, uh, but she thinks it's her choice when she goes to church and when she doesn't. Uh, but apparently her supervisor, Eric Rucker, does not agree. Now, they're working at uh, their Secretary of State, Chris Kobach's office in Kansas. Secretary of State for the state of Kansas. It's within his office. They tell her, you got to go to church, otherwise we're going to fire you. Come on, now that can't, well, Where do we live in Iran? That can't be the case, right? All right, let's find out uh, what the facts are. Canfield claims that before she was fired on November of 2013, Rucker said, quote, repeatedly and emphatically that she was being terminated because, quote, she doesn't go to a church. Now, friendly atheist blogger Hamant Mehta uh, picked up the story and he said, the problems began in February 2013, when Canfield was invited to a church service by a staffer working for Rucker. Now, apparently she decided, hey, look, I might be Methodist, but, and she said, it, it happened multiple times, but she never went. And despite being a Methodist, she wasn't particularly religious. So she decides that she's not going to go, and it's not their business to tell her when to go. That has nothing to do with her job. Sorry, you're going to get terminated. Now, There are corroborating witnesses, amazingly. They went to a relative of hers to try to get her to go to church, if not to fire her. Let me give you that part of the story. That November, Rucker paid a visit to Canfield's grandmother, Margie Canfield, an official in the state Republican Party. Rucker informed Margie Canfield that her daughter had to be fired because of her failure to attend worship services. When Margie says she would not fire her own granddaughter, who didn't even work for her, Rucker said that he would. And he did. Terminator. These are the guys who claim they care about the Constitution. And they go, oh, don't tread on me. Oh, uh, the United States Constitution does what I Second Amendment. Is there any other amendments? Is there any other, is anything else written in the Constitution? Uh, I don't know. Well, let me read you the Constitution, because obviously uh, Eric Rucker and, I guess, Chris Kobach and uh, the rest of the Republicans in Kansas don't know what's in the Constitution at all. United States Constitution, Article 6, Paragraph 3. No religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. That's what America stands for. We're the Americans. These right-wing Republicans are the most un-American people I've ever seen. You want to live in a country run by mullahs, by religious leaders, that requires religious tests, you've got a couple of options. You're a Christian, maybe you're Catholic, go to the Vatican. They're run uh, by a religious leader. You're uh, you love religion so much you want even more restrictive, you want everybody to follow whatever religion the leaders believe in. You got Iran, you got Saudi Arabia, you got do got choices, man. One of your choices is not Kansas in the United States of America. Because here we do not do religious tests for office. You know who decided it? Our founding fathers, when they put it in the Constitution. If you don't like it, get the fuck out of the country. Leave. Go home right now. Wherever home is for you. You think America's home for you? America's not home for you. You hate America. You hate the idea of America. The idea that we could all be equal. That, that one particular religion does not rule us all. That we don't have to go to your church. We don't have to bow our head to you. That we are actually free men. And get to make those choices and free women. Oh, you hate it. You hate it. This guy should be immediately fired, and his boss should be fired. They know right now there are claims about this. It's in the papers. What are they doing? He's still in office. The more you let this go on, man, the more it creeps. The more people think it's acceptable. It's not acceptable. It's deeply un-American. It's deeply unconstitutional.
5: I-
0: This show is sponsored by Audible, where you can get hundreds of thousands of audiobooks, radio shows, audio versions of periodicals, and more. You can get a free book of your choice by going to audiblepodcast.com slash best, which you can also find linked up on this show's website. If you want to dive deeper into today's topic, I have a couple of suggestions for you. Today, we've heard from Kevin Cruz discussing his book, One Nation Under God, about the rise of religiosity in America generally, and the GOP in particular, and the clip we're about. Out to hear features chris hedges talking about his deep dive into the modern day republican party and you can read more about it in his book american fascists both are available at audible and one of them can be yours for free by signing up at Audiblepodcast.com slash best or i might add by visiting your local library
9: So, Chris, I want to begin. It's, uh, Robert Shear interviewing, uh, man I respect most in the world of journalism, or well, a man or woman. Uh, Chris Hedges uh, writes a weekly column for Truthdig, has written so many important books. And I just, I don't know, I, I reread your column this morning that you have on Truthdig, The Radical Christian Right and the War on Government. And, uh, I, I just thought it was an incredible take on on the whole economic uh, crisis that we 're experiencing the shutdown in Washington, uh, the role of Ted Cruz, what this is all about and you know you say in the piece, you spent two years traveling in the circle of the of the Christian right, and you basically present it as a prototype fascist movement uh that is determined to destroy uh the open society destroy uh, basically t- constitutional government is that an overstatement uh, uh, uh on my part
7: no that that is what they want and um as all you know extreme ideological systems function as Hannah Arendt pointed out they have a public face and and uh and a public presentation of who they are and and privately it's something very different and you see that uh, with all of the time that I spent inside the mega churches and creationist seminars and right to life weekends. Uh, that, uh, and, and Aaron actually calls it, you know, uh, with all totalitarian movements, indoctrination and, uh, um, you know, uh, propaganda. So, you, you know, the, the, the mega churches and the soft music and the feel good stuff, that's the propaganda. Uh, but once they suck you inside, it's uh, a very, very frightening movement, and one that very few Americans understand. I mean, Cruz comes out of it. His father is one of the stalwarts of this movement. Uh, it informs the radical wing of the Tea Party. It informs the lunatic fringe of the Republican Party. Um, these people look at all what they would define as secular humanist institutions, including everything from the Department of Education, uh, to, uh, even, you know, people like me that they would consider nominal Christians because they don't buy their peculiar, uh, version of, uh, biblical law and, and outlook, uh, as, uh, deviants that have to be eradicated in order to create the Christian state. It is really an absolutely terrifying vision of the world, and we are getting a glimpse of it right now in the House of Representatives. The problem is that the media, and I speak, I mean, you were in the LA Times, I was in the New York Times, uh, in the New York Times newsroom, there was just a disdain for all types of religion. There wasn't much differentiation between, uh, you know, a, a high church, Episcopalian, and a Baptist. Uh, and I think that, that uh, the, much of the failure to understand the engine of this movement is a failure to really, uh, examine closely, um, this religious extremism. Uh, they use the traditional language of Christianity, but what they're promoting is something, uh, very radical, very frightening, and, and I would not be shy, as you mentioned, to use the word fascist. I mean, I think it's a kind of Christian fascism.
9: And what's so interesting about your article, you say, yes, These people are truly dangerous. You go so far as to say, and I'm quoting, all ideological, theological, and political debates with the radical Christian right are useless. It cares nothing for rational thought and discussion. Its adherents are using the space within the open society to destroy the open society itself. Our naive attempts to placate a movement bent on our destruction, to prove to it that we too have values, only strengthens its supposed legitimacy and increases our own Weakness. So you really have described this as the kind of proto fascist movement we saw in Germany. They began uh, attacking homosexuals and gypsies, and they ended up uh, killing, uh, you know, uh, 6 million Jews and 50 million uh, uh, Slavic people. Uh, But when I remember growing up as a kid, there was books and articles written on, can it happen here? Or was Germany so exceptional? And my father was a German immigrant. He came out of the Protestant church. And I remember this being a live uh, discussion. How did it happen in Germany? Uh, And it's a question that Americans have to address because we pride ourselves. We're an advanced society. We're well-educated. You know, we have market capitalism. And Germany had all of that. Germans were actually, uh, and Hannah Arendt was very, clear in pointing us out, probably the best educated people in the world. Uh, and and yet the most bizarre uh, destruction of human life happened on the watch of the best educated people in the world. So basically you're arguing that it can happen here.
7: Well, I'm arguing that it is happening here.
9: It is happening
7: here. And that the, the engine of these movements, and I would, uh, you know, you're right about Weimar, but this, I also witnessed this in Yugoslavia with the economic collapse, of Yugoslavia, the, the, when you have a dysfunctional liberal elite or self-identified liberal elite, I'm not sure that Obama's policies make him a traditional liberal, um, paralyzed when it is unable to respond effectively to the mortgage and foreclosure crisis, the massive student debt that is, uh, strapping, uh, you know, long-term debt peonage on the backs of our young people, uh, an insane healthcare system, uh, that doesn't function uh, and, and bleeds us dry and leaves many people without adequate health care, uh, no real jobs program, no attempt to ameliorate the uh, long-term uh, unemployment, underemployment, uh, then uh, in a moment of crisis, uh, whether that's a financial meltdown, whether that's caused by ecological catastrophe, we are barreling towards both, of course, uh, then these kinds of movements can say, look, that liberal center uh, doesn't work. It, it's hypocritical, it's, it's weak, uh, and in disgust, societies tend to turn to these buffoonish figures um, that in times of relative stability are the butt of, of jokes and ridicule, um, as the Nazis were, as a figure like Roda Pradovan Karadich was. Uh, and uh, having lived in Yugoslavia... Uh, uh, and cover the war, Uh, I I look at this movement as having very similar parallels with the extreme, rabid nationalist movements, whether it was Croat, Serb, uh, or Muslim, that arose out of the economic ruins of Yugoslavia. We've seen it before, and of course it can happen here. It can happen uh, anywhere, uh, as Sinclair Lewis correctly pointed out. Um, if the economic conditions and the political uh, conditions are ripe to make it happen and I think that uh, much of my own opposition to the Democratic party and the traditional what's left of the traditional liberal establishment and is that because it is so ineffectual uh, it in fact is accelerating the rise of this extremism and we have already seen the Republican party seized by this lunatic fringe, uh, and uh, uh, the only answer is economic. Uh, if we can re- begin to reintegrate those who have been disenfranchised back into the economy, give them stability, give them uh, jobs that pay living wages and benefits and health care, uh, then we can break the back of this movement. If we continue to ignore their suffering and permit the corporate disemboweling of the country, Uh, then this movement uh, is not only uh, going to become dangerous, but it's going to become increasingly powerful.
9: Yeah, and I want to stick to this question of of, uh, Germany and actually the title of your talk that you're going to be giving in Santa Monica on Sunday, The Myth of Human Progress and the Collapse of Complex Societies. When I first heard the title, I thought, well, that's a mouthful. But it really hits it because when we ask people, you know, uh, what's going on and isn't this dangerous and so many people are suffering in our own country and throughout the world because of these policies, they always come back, no, we live in a scientific time. We're rational. We're led by the best and the brightest. Uh, We have a complex society. And and as a kid, I remember just thinking about my father's society, my father's relatives, German Protestants, killing my mother's relatives, Russian Jews. And I went back to Germany uh, eight or nine times after the war trying to figure out how did these people do it, these well-educated people who had been a a prosperous society, prided themselves on, on law and order. And then I realized it was the hollowing out of the economy and of the life yeah. and, the, and, and, and the impoverishment. And you capture it brilliantly here, I think, in, in the piece you wrote this week for Truth Dig. I just want to quote it. We have abandoned our poor and working class. We have created a government monster that sucks the marrow out of our bones to enrich and empower the oligarch and co- corporate elite. The protection of criminals, whether in a war or on Wall Street is part of our mirage of law and order. We have betrayed the vast and growing underclass. Most believers within the Christian right are struggling to survive in a hostile world. We have failed them. Their very real despair is being manipulated and used by Christian fascists such as the Texas senator. That is the crux of the problem, this income inequality, the the, the despair in the economy that that whites are feeling, particularly in those 25 states uh, run by Republican governors in the Deep South and so forth. That is the basis of a homegrown fascism, and that, that's really what well, that, you're calling that, attention to.
7: That's always the basis of fascism. That's always the basis of totalitarianism, and that's why the great writers on totalitarianism, you know, whether it's Paxton's Anatomy of Fascism or Anna Aaron or Fritz Stern, the Politics of Cultural Despair, begin with despair. It, it is when the world around them uh, is uh, irredeemably hostile to their existence. Uh, that they retreat into forms of magical thinking, which is what totalitarian ideology always is, and what, of course, the ideology of the radical Christian right is. It's a form of magic. Uh, and uh, if you don't address that despair, uh, then and in fact you make that despair more widespread among the population, then you... Uh, see uh, a growth of these movements. And what, what always happens is that there is a particular moment, uh, and both Germany, uh, Weimar Germany, and uh, the former Yugoslavia went through periods of massive hyperinflation where, in essence, the currency is worth nothing. Um, uh, that kind of crisis uh, triggered the rise of these movements. And I think that we would have to have a crisis of that magnitude. Uh, but if we did, everything is in place, including uh, an ineffectual and feckless and um, hypocritical liberal elite uh, to create some very frightening conditions uh, that could give rise to our own version of fascism. And fascism always looks different in whatever country it is. Italian fascism didn't look like German fascism. Uh, the, the kind of Teutonic myths and all that stuff that the Germans reveled in just didn't play out. In fact, Mussolini used to look back on uh Imperial Rome. The anti-semitism came very late to Italian fascism and, so, and and fairly reluctantly actually. Um so fascism takes many forms and it always reaches back into to seek to credentialize itself through national mythology uh and through familiar and comforting uh national and in this case religious symbols. So Uh, you know, when fascism comes to America, they will be uh, clutching the Christian cross and reciting the Pledge of Allegiance, which is basically what they're doing.
0: I've got a new message to play, but first, this is a refresher. About a month ago, Wade called in and left this voicemail, which Nathan is going to respond to.
3: Hey, Jay, it's Wade. I wanted to comment on the idea of victimless crimes. Um, I I find this this idea to be a little ridiculous, and I've heard it discussed before. I've I've read about this on the Internet. I've debated people on the Internet about it, Uh, almost all libertarians. And the, the thing about it is is that the law is in constant conundrum over who is a victim, who has standing in the court. And so when you say that we're, we're only going to enforce crimes that have a victim, you're going to end up right back in the same spot that you are now. You, you start with a blank slate, and, and laws will just keep being created. I've said it before, and I'll say it again here. Laws are created in response to something. If you don't enforce the so-called victimless crime of running a stop sign, then you're going to have more victims. So what is a victimless crime? A victimless crime is usually trying to prevent a victim. So it it, it makes no sense to to say that uh, we're going to tear the whole system down and start all over again, and at the end of the day, all we're going to end up with is the same thing, Except the war on drugs will be gone and drugs will be legal and and, and prostitution will be legal. Well, wouldn't it be easier just to try and get those changes done within the system that we're in now? It just seems that that it's a little bit of a colossal waste of time to to advocate for for the so-called non-enforcing of victimless crimes. At what point does someone become a victim? You still have to answer that question. Just saying, it doesn't. That doesn't do anything. That that's not real world. It's a, it's a fantasy and a, and a not a very good one at that. Anyway, Jay, that's what I uh that's why I thought about it. Have a go. Hi,
10: Jay. This is Nathan from Vancouver, Washington. I'm responding to Wade's rejection of the idea of victimless crimes. His example of the stop sign falls into the category of tax evasion or destruction of public property. And it's really a straw man of the idea, obviously running a stop sign endangers others on the road. Reck- recklessly operating a motor vehicle, like firing a gun randomly into the air, is a behavior that directly puts those around you in harm's way. We don't demand that a body bag be filled before action be taken. The fact that there are gray areas around the legal concept is not an argument that it cannot be pursued. When does my music pass from something you just don't like to something that is doing you harm, such as making it impossible for you to sleep at night? The exact definition is hard to nail down for some edge cases, but that doesn't make the entire subject impossible to work with. There are two main reasons to push the concept of victimless crimes being unpunishable. The first is the basic premise that you shouldn't punish someone who hasn't hurt anyone. It It is reasonable to say that actually harming a person by depriving them of life, liberty, or property should generally be a criminal act punishable by law. So too should attempting to harm and constructively conspiring to do so. But beyond that, you're literally punishing someone for being able or slightly likely to do harm. Drugs are the best example. If you have drugs, you may abuse them. Then you may become an addict and lose your job and social network. Then you might resort to victimizing others to support your habit. In other words, we're going to punish you because a whole chain of actually unlikely events may ensue because you have a pill, needle, or joint in your pocket. The second is that victimless crimes are often used by majorities to enforce their preferences on or against minorities. We still outlaw heroin because a majority doesn't see themselves using it. Cannabis was largely outlawed because it was a drug, drug of black and brown people, and now it is becoming legal because a sufficient number of white people see it as an option that is not objectionable. Disproportionate punishment for crack cocaine is a design to hurt poor blacks. Gun control punishes perceived conservative rednecks. And massive taxes on tobacco products force the costs of society disproportionately on the minority that is addicted to them. Enforcing the mere personal preferences of the majority on minorities at the point of a gun is inherently immoral. The onus should be on the makers of the law to prove that there is something, something or someone that is being harmed, other than the actor they wish to prohibit, such as tobacco, and that the law constructively and narrowly punishes behaviors that cause said harm. Thanks, and I enjoy the show.
9: Right.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klubusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply leave a message at 202-999-3991. So today, I just want to tell you about what I've been discussing on the members-only bonus content shows recently. Uh, To say that big things have been happening here in the background is not, to be fair, uh, exactly true. But big thoughts about the potential for things to be happening have definitely been happening. And so I did, about a week ago or so, I did a a bonus show talking about all these big thoughts I'm having, what I'm considering doing, where the show may go, what I may end up doing, side projects I'm considering. And I, I think it's interesting stuff. And so if you're interested in checking that out, uh, that's in the members only bonus content from about a week ago. And then even more recently than that, I, I, I feel like I broke a code. I, I had this sort of uh, breakthrough on a concept that has been plaguing me for a while now. And I, I feel like I finally figured it out and I explain in a member show, you know, what this concept is. To be fair, I also explain how this code was actually broken and explained to me a couple of years ago, but then I forgot about it. And then I figured it out myself and I was like, oh, like, look how smart I am. And then I was like, oh, wait, I think it's that same thing from a couple of years ago, just in a slightly different form. Uh, so it's less exciting, but still super exciting. And it, it, it's, uh, it's this idea that, has a big impact on people who pay attention to politics a lot. You know, we we pretty much get that politics are super important. We, you know, we know that we need to engage in them either, you know, either we find them interesting or we think, well, this is terrible to have to pay attention to, but it's really important for society that we pay attention. So we do, you know, or or both. But uh, you know, if you're if you're the kind of person who thinks like politics are super important, but Sometimes I wish I could move to a mountain cabin and not have to hear about the GOP debates. That would be really nice. If you have that sort of conflict going on in your head, this member show is for you. I, I, I think I've figured out the key to surviving politics and, and what is up with that dichotomy in the first place that we know politics is important, but it can be super frustrating to stay plugged into them all the time. So if you're, uh, if you're in that boat, like I think many of us are, that member show is, uh, is going to be of interest to you. So, you know, if you were maybe on the, on the cusp of like, oh, maybe I should support this show because I like the work Jay does and, uh, you know, maybe he could use my, you know, couple of bucks a month or, or whatever, uh, maybe that would tip you over into actually signing up. If you're interested, please visit the contribute tab at bestofileft.com. And then secondarily, in the previous episode, I was asking for any advice anyone has on how we can do what we do better. We, you know, we, we would love for people to be sharing the show, sharing individual clips that we put out, sort of spreading the word, doing the activism that we promote and sharing that activism through networks or by email or, you know, whatever else. And so if you have any advice, please keep that coming in. Uh, you know, great advice has already been coming in and I, I would love to hear more. So if you want to chime in on that, please do. Either by email or, again, the number 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Get even more from us by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can also be always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How
5: we get so trained We can't see past Our sad stories and He passed our own sad story